This is the Fostering Church Podcast, giving you and your church clarity about where to focus so that you can help provide more than enough for children and families in foster care in your community. Here are your hosts, Jason Johnson and Jason Weber. Hey, welcome to the Fostering Church Podcast. I'm Jason Johnson, and I'm here with my friend, Jason Weber. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jason. And we're back. All right. As we continue our series, unpacking six key pillars of what an actively engaged church in foster care looks like, we've got a really fantastic episode today on the importance of building relational support networks for families. And when we say families, we mean foster families, kinship families, biological families, families that are caring for children that might not be their own in a lot of cases the importance of building out those relational support networks for them. That's right. In the last episode, we explored tangible support. And in this episode, we are discussing relational support. It's very closely connected with tangible support, but also has distinct features and opportunities for your ministry Mm -hmm. to engage. Yeah, that's right. And before we dive into all of that, you know, I've always got a very important question for you, Jason. Yes, you do. Yes. So this one is extremely important and highly relevant to the conversation we're going to have with our guest today. And so here it is. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Have you ever been to Las Vegas? Yes. Once. We had a family member who uh, got married in Las Vegas when our twins, when they were little, like they were toddlers. Okay. um, They were the flower girls in this Las Vegas wedding. And I kid you not, like it was in one of those chapels. Nice. Like I, I didn't spring for the Elvis glasses at the, at the kiosk by the front desk, but I could have, they were there. <laughs> I could have. You showed restraint. So I'm just going to put this out there. I bet that some of our listeners today um, have also been married in Vegas. I actually know some people who have, and they're kind of the most like suburban straight laced people ever. And then they tell you their wedding story and you're like, what really? So I would love if, if you got married in Vegas and you've got like a wedding picture at one of those Vegas chapels, Oh yeah, share it with us. We'd love to see it and to hear your story. Yeah, the best way to do that is just go to the More Than Enough Together Facebook page. Yeah, that would be so fun. That's awesome. So I've actually never been to Vegas. Um, and I'll be honest with you, Jason, like the little church kid inside of me is a little scared of the idea of, you know, going to Vegas. I I don't know why, you know, not scared of what I'll do, but like, you know, for me, I'm relatively boring guy. Like, give me a book and a coffee and a comfy chair and a and a coffee shop on a Saturday night and I'm good. I'm golden. Good to go. It seems to be very antithetical with why people might want to go to Vegas. So there's that. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people go to Vegas to do that. To sit in a coffee shop and read. Yeah. 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 It's so good. (laughs) I totally would. I actually travel a lot for work and I'm all about like making it as least adventurous as possible. Like no new restaurants, no new, I will go to the Applebee's if I have to. Are you a chain guy? You know what? Um, if I'm somewhere and and I'm feeling a little uncomfortable and out of my zone, I'll be at the Applebee's because I know what to expect. It's safe. It's safe for me. I have had colleagues over the years stretch me in this area, but by nature, I am. I, I like to play it safe. I like. I like to go where I know that what I'm going to order is going to be good. I, I don't like to take those risks now. 
I've had some people get me out of that comfort zone and it, and it's been rewarded with really good food, but generally I'm, I'm the same. I get it. So that's pro that's just why I don't go to Vegas. I just feel like here's Jason's little tiny comfort zone. And then here's Las Vegas, right? Yeah. Right. Not only has our guest today been to Vegas. So that's why it's a really important conversation to have about Vegas because not only has she been to Vegas, but she was actually born and raised there and still lives there. That's actually probably fairly rare for anyone in any city, but her name is Carly Sousa and she serves on staff at a great church in Las Vegas, serving and supporting families involved with foster care, literally all around the city of Vegas, her home city where she was born, raised, grew up, and now she gets to serve families all around the city. You're going to be inspired by her story and I promise you equipped to take your next best steps forward in ministry. Hey, thanks so much for being with us here today, Carly. We're grateful to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So Carly, Johnson was telling me that you have a pretty interesting story about how you ended up being born and raised in Las Vegas. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, oftentimes when people other places in the world hear that I'm from Las Vegas, they make jokes like, oh, did you grow up in a casino? Like, And I'm like, well, no, but my mom did move to Las Vegas in 1980 to be a showgirl. She was part of the original cast of Jubilee. That's how her and my dad met. It was the longest running showgirl show in Las Vegas. It ran for 36 years. My dad worked there the whole 36 years. Um, and my parents never left. So here we are. Wow. So I've got to dive in a little bit more <laughs> to that. So were, did they work nights a lot? Like what was your childhood like? Did you ever like go to school and think, you know, my friend's parents are bankers and teachers and mine aren't like, um, well, so my mom wasn't a showgirl after I was born. Okay. So she only was in show business for about three years. Gotcha. Um, and then God called her out of it. Um, my dad is a stage and, and he yeah. did that my whole life. Yeah. And I actually just said to my husband yesterday, it's so weird because I didn't realize my childhood was weird. But my dad would leave for work at five o'clock every day. Yeah. He would have to be there at six. The first show would start at seven and the second show would start at nine. So he'd get home about like one thirty or two in the morning. Um, and it was just our life. I didn't know any different yeah. because of being in Las Vegas, even friends who didn't necessarily have family and show business, it is a 24 hour city. So you could work at the grocery store and still work 10 PM to 6 AM. So yeah. I had lots of friends that had yeah. bizarre work schedules for their parents. Yeah. That's awesome. I guess it was just, it was just your normal growing up. It was it feel different. Yeah. So that's a super fun story. And similarly, I know that you and your husband actually have a pretty fun and powerful story of how God led you guys into foster care and adoption actually very, very early on in your marriage. And then ultimately how that led you into church leadership, uh, to, into serving many, many families, not just in your church, but around the city of Las Vegas, where you've lived your whole life. And so can you tell us a little bit about that journey of progression that God has, has started you on and taking you through to where you are now? Yeah. So, um, my husband and I met because he actually worked for me at Starbucks. So we didn't date while we worked at the same store. We started dating about a year <laughs> later. Um, but it's kind of a joke that I still get to be the boss. So <laughs> I'll run with it. 
But um, we started attending Hope Church. I was 19 when I started coming to church at Hope. And um, John joined me there about two years later. And it was sitting in a church service. Um, We had been married about a month and a half at this point. And the pastor that was doing announcements said that Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, um, was super desperate for foster parents. And if it was something that you were interested in, call this number. So we had always talked about adoption even before we got married. We knew it was something we wanted to pursue one day, but we had never talked about foster care, mostly because we didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was an unknown other than the horror stories you hear on the news. Mm -hmm. Um, So we left church that day, kind of briefly talked about it in the car. And then um, God separately, just over the next few weeks, confirmed for both of us that it was really what we were supposed to be doing. Um, so we were like the process to get licensed, you know, is about six to 12 months. So by the time we actually get a kid in our home, we will have been married about a year and in our like logical mapped out planning, it seemed like the timing would work perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, and like almost always God had very different plans. So the only time the department of family services has ever condensed classes down, um, they took 10 weeks of classes down to two weekends. We still did 30 hours. It was just very compacted. Um, long story short, we weren't married for quite five months and we brought home a Sillinger before. Wow. So we thought, yeah. And we thought, you know, four kids is like really hard, but you can do anything when there's like an end goal in mind. And the goal of foster care is reunification. And so we'll have these kids for a few months and then they'll go back to their family and it'll be just us for a little bit. And then we'll do that cycle a few times before we adopt. Um, and again, God had very different plans. So those kids were with us for two years and then we legally adopted them. So we have had four or more children since four and a half months into marriage. So, wow. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we're talking about today, the main thing we're talking about today is this idea of relational support. And I know how important that is uh, to you and in what you're doing right now in your community. But can you talk a little bit about relational support and the role it played or the lack uh, of relational support it might've played in your own journey? Absolutely. So like I mentioned, my mom is from England. All of her family still lives there. We were really fortunate as children to get to go back and visit very frequently because that's just where grandma lived. Um, So when we brought this sibling group before home, my mom was back in England visiting family. So my main pillar of support was not here. Um, They came home with us on a Wednesday and on Saturday, John left for a two week work training and So here I was still, um, a full-time employee and I had four kids who at the time were seven months, two, three, and five. And (laughs) I had never been a parent before. Like I grew up, you know, in a community with a lot of kids, but it's way different babysitting than having kids that are your full responsibility. And so it was about 1 PM, um, on like Sunday or Monday after bringing the kids home and my mom's best friend who I've known my whole life showed up at our house and I opened the door and I must have looked like a real mess because she was like, you know, are you okay? And I'm like, no, please come in. So she walked in our front door and she said, why aren't these kids napping? And I said, well, they told me they don't take naps. And she was like, honey, you, they don't get to decide that. Like you're the parent, a two-year-old can take a nap. So she said, here's the plan. I'm going to put these kids down for a nap and you're going to go take a shower. And I was like, 
okay. Um, but that was just the first of so many times where the Lord just had just the right person show up at the right time that really gave us exactly what we needed in that moment. I needed to take a shower and I needed someone to tell me that I was the parent and I could tell kids that it was nap time and that they Mm. needed to lay down and take a nap. That's so good. And it's just so real life and practical. And I know that a lot of, of ministry leaders who are likely foster or adoptive parents listening can relate to that as well. And, you know, one unique part of your story is that um, not only um, did God kind of expedite some things for you and John in your own family, but that also led you into recognizing the importance of of connecting and supporting foster families, not only in your church, but in your community. And so can you share with us a little bit about the role that you serve in now within your church and kind of what all that entails in terms of relationally supporting families around the city? Absolutely. So when we first became foster parents, we very quickly learned, even though we were very deeply knit into the community of Las Vegas, if you were talking with someone other than another foster parent, they looked at you like you had three heads, like everything was just such a foreign concept. Um, and so we learned that we needed to connect with other foster families to be able to have a safe place to share what we were experiencing. Um, so about a year and a half, two years into our journey, we started a support group in our home. Um, and that support group met monthly and it was really just like a coming together of foster families to just kind of let it all out and just say, this is what I'm struggling through. Have you experienced this? Do you have any advice? Um, and after hosting that in our home about three or four years, I came to the leadership at our church and I said, Hey, this is something that is growing and we need a space to facilitate this. And also, Um, you know, it's hard to be as transparent as you need to when you're like sitting at the dining table and the kids that you're struggling with are 10 feet away on the couch. So like if we could be in the church building where we would have childcare and, you know, really a safe open space to talk. So we transitioned that group onto our church campus and it just really started to grow. And we went from meeting um, once a month to meeting twice a month to then meeting weekly. Um, And the group has been meeting weekly probably for five or six years now. Um, And I went on staff with the church about two years ago, leading the foster care ministry, which has grown. But the core of what we do is a support group. So it is really just a place for people to come together and just to kind of let it all out. And sometimes people just sit and listen. And the fact that someone can walk into that space, maybe even for the first time, feeling so isolated and so alone in what they're struggling through and walk out and be like, there's at least 10 of their families that know exactly how I'm feeling and exactly what I'm walking through. Um, that's the goal mm. is that when someone walks out, they don't feel alone mm. anymore. You, you probably have already started to answer this next question, but a couple of days ago I was, I was with an organizational leader and she was sharing that recently she had spoken to a pastor and the pastor had said something along these lines to her the other day. Listen, I just don't understand why foster parents need so much extra help and support. What makes them so special that we would go to all this trouble? And he wasn't genuinely asking for like, inspire me, help me understand. It was a genuine question of what, what makes them need so much. So if a pastor or a ministry leader is listening to this and, and is asking, you know, what are the unique things that foster parents walk through that require a place like what you've created? Um, what would you say to them? 
I mean, it really is a journey that is so isolating unless someone understands it. I think when you first step into foster care, at least for us, the idea was, okay, there'll be a child or children that we're engaging with and, you know, that there can be struggles, things can be hard with the child, but you can kind of like work your way through it. What we didn't take into account was the biological family, the Department of Family Services, the caseworkers, the judges, the Mm -hmm. medical appointments, Mm -hmm. all of these things that like when you are taking on a foster child, it's more than one child and, you know, a little bit of a disruption to your everyday life. Everything drastically changes. And so um, you're almost carrying a I mean, it would be like ministering to a a hurting family or a, you know, someone going through tragedy, but they're in your home. They don't ever leave. There's no reprieve. Mm. Um, And so being able to meet those needs that are physical and emotional and um, spiritual, all of those things, um, but inside your home all the time, I mean, there's just no way to do it without support. There's no way to do it well without support. Yeah, because people, when they hear foster parent, they focus on the second half of that, right? The the parent. Well, you're a parent to another kid. And and so, it, it. but what most people maybe don't understand is what the foster part of that means and the additional commitments right. and the uh, appointments yeah. and all of the things that are required to do the foster part of that. Yeah. As you mentioned, Carly, um, the natural trajectory of a foster family uh, within a church is eventually to feel lonely and isolated. If if you know there's not an intentional effort made to um, to mitigate that, so what are some practical things you have done to help address that uh, and and prevent families as much as possible from finding themselves in that isolated, lonely place? Yeah. So we. Um, obviously invite people to come and be a part of our support group, but we have tried pairing up people with other foster families that are in a similar season to them. So if a new foster parent specifically comes to me and says, Hey, I'm really struggling through X, Y, Z. So maybe it's, I've never had a kid with educational problems before. And now I have this kid who has an IEP and a 504 plan and all of these things, being able to connect them to a foster parent that has walked through educational challenges previously. And so having someone that can sit down and answer all of their questions, um, but again, just not make them not allow them to feel alone. Um, that's been one of the ways that we do that. One of the ways that we have really been able to partner with the community though, is our support group is not exclusive to Hope Church. Um, Our support group is open to anyone, any foster family in the Valley. And the gift of that has been that people who would never step foot on a church campus are stepping foot on our church campus because they need support. Um, And so they'll walk into a room oftentimes quite hesitant initially because, you know, they make jokes almost every single time of, you know, is the place going to burn down when I step in or, you know, those kind of jokes that people make who aren't often engaged in church. Um, but just being able to love them and to say like, you have a space here and it doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. It doesn't matter what your belief system is that we're going to welcome you in and you're going to be a part of this family. Mm. Mm, That's really powerful. And, um, I love how you keep reiterating just that families don't feel alone and, you know, you're a ministry leader listening to this or a church leader. And you're asking yourself, you know, at the end of the day, there's so many things that need to be done and that we can do. If we were to boil it down to just 
the the brass tacks, like what's some of the most important stuff in terms of relational support? I think it's it's what you've said, Carly, that just families know they're not alone. And sometimes we can overcomplicate some things in terms of, you know, building out systems and strategies and ministry. But also sometimes it can just be as simple as creating space for people to be together and know that they're not alone. And um, I love the practical idea of not only do we have groups that they can come to, but let's pair each other kind of one-on-one just in a unofficial, natural mentoring kind of relationship. Um, and so that's a, that's a great practical tip for, for anyone that's, that's listening. Uh, I want to ask you about um, kind of maybe speed bumps or um, some things that you've had to overcome or navigate around. And so there might be church leaders or volunteer leaders in their church listening and thinking, I I really want to do this in our church and I want to do it well, but, you know, but this, uh, this X, Y, Z thing is really standing in our way or preventing us from being able to do that. If you can think back to kind of your journey, uh, what are some roadblocks or speed bumps, um, some ministry leaders might face and what are some practical ways they can work around them to ensure that families truly have the support that they need? Yeah. So I would say when we first started doing a support group, I think at that time, had I come to my church and said, Hey, would you provide space for this? This is an idea that I have. Um, it probably wouldn't have been a priority to most people because I think, you know, well-meaning people come to a a pastor or a church leader with great ideas all the time and they can't say yes to everything. Um, so the fact that it was already happening and I was able to come to my church and say, Hey, look, I've got these 20 families that are engaged in this support group that are meeting in my home or in the community. Is there a way for us to transition this group onto the church campus? And I will gladly continue to lead it, um, and be in charge of all the different pieces of it. But would you provide a space? Um, so I think having something that was more solid than just an idea made it easier to, for my church to grasp onto it um, because there was already a model and a plan. Um, and so we were just physically transitioning the location. Yeah, that's great. And actually, you know, we had a great conversation in one of our earlier episodes with Adrian Lewis, and we were talking about um, how sometimes what people need most from their church leadership is just space, just um, and maybe permission's not the right word, but, um, just support. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, we want you to preach a sermon on it every weekend, right? It sometimes the most valuable thing is, um, a little bit of space and a little bit of trust, um, uh, and some empowerment for leaders like you or others, leaders to say, yeah, well, we want to create that space for you to feel empowered, to continue to lead this. And, and that goes a long way. And I think that you're, you're a testimony to that for sure. But I love how you're encouraging leaders to kind of establish something that's, that's got some, um, a little bit of history to it, a little bit of proven concept, because you're right. Sometimes when we bring things to church leadership that aren't really fully formed, uh, it can feel maybe to the church leader, like we're asking them to lead this stuff to do it. And, mm-hmm. and, as many can attest to, the response is often um, not really what we want. Um, so that's that's awesome. Yeah, Carly, I, I have a question for you about, you know, when you talk about wrapping around families, foster families, both in your church and in the community, um, you know, I think 
a lot of people know how to do certain things. I mean, you know, a lot of people know how to make meals and, and drop them off and, and some of those kinds of things. But, uh, but there are a lot of aspects of supporting foster families that maybe families don't understand. They maybe don't understand some of the, the, the trauma related things and, and some of that, uh, what kinds of things do you offer for, uh, your support folks that, uh, that help to bring them along to uh, the word we like to use is disciple them along in that process to be better equipped to support families. Well, yeah. So just this past Saturday, we had our first equip training is actually what we called it. Um, and it spent, we spent six hours together and the first three hours of that was us really walking through what is poverty, what is trauma, what is, you know, human trafficking, all of these things that weave into foster care. Um, and it was kind of interesting, honestly, to sit there. And I think some people in the congregation realize that they have some personal trauma that they didn't even recognize as trauma when you start to sit down and, and really unpack it all. Um, but I think it gives people a better understanding of, you know, this child is not in foster care because one day their parent woke up and just decided they didn't want to parent anymore. I mean, there is generations of hurt and loss and trauma. And I mean, many of these kids are, you know, four or five generations that have spent in, in the foster care system. One of the practical questions that we get often from ministry leaders is we, we want to build support groups. We want to build those safe places of connection for families, much like you have, but what do we do with them? And I don't know about you guys, but I've sat uh, in some support groups, um, and thought this is dangerous. I don't feel comfortable here. And I'm the pastor of this church. Like (laughs) this is not good, you know, uh, because it just derails into, um, therapy session that none of us are qualified to give therapy on or gripe session. Right. So, um, creating that safe space. And then just very practically, how do you direct people into healthy conversation and good connection. What does that look like for you guys? I wish that I could take more credit for it, but literally Jesus gave me people. Um, and it was very organic how it happened. It was just other foster and adoptive moms that I just started building a relationship with and just saw leadership ability in them. And so like, as we walked life together, as we, um, you know, shared our personal experiences as well as, you know, this experiences of those around us. Um, we've put those people in place. Mm, Um, there have been three ladies that I've served with for the last five or six years. Um, and we've all gone to CAFO every year. We've all done like all these things that, um, you know, are building us up as far as being leaders. Um, but everyone is other than myself is a volunteer. Um, and they just take on as much of a commitment as they can handle. And it's been different for each of my leaders in different seasons. And that has really been a beautiful thing. Also, when one of our leaders has brought home a new placement and has needed to take a step or two back for a little while, you know, there's space to be able to do that. Um, and I think it shows the families that we're serving that like, we're not better than you at this. This is really hard for all of us. Um, but we're going to walk alongside each other and support each other in it. Um, so as far as any specific leadership training, I got nothing for that. It's just been people that we've built great relationships Mm, with. They're my battle buddies. So you mentioned some of your leaders. Do you have, um, kind of a base of leaders who are helping to, to lead some of these groups and navigate those conversations? And is, is there some kind of an official like 
training that they've gone through or how have you onboarded them? I think that'd be helpful as well for leaders to hear, like, how do I build this out in a way that can actually work in our church? Yeah. And I, I would say that it's not always going to be possible, but when it is possible to have a foster parent or a previous foster parent in that role. Um, you know, I could never sit down with a group of people that are in drug rehab and say, I actually know how you feel. Cause that's not something that I've ever personally struggled through. And so I feel like other times when, when other leaders of foster care ministries has, have come and sat down with me and said, why is it that your ministry is successful and mine is struggling so much? Often a key element is that person has never engaged in foster care personally. And so not that that makes them irrelevant because we need highly trained, qualified people. But I do think sometimes that there is a disconnect there when they haven't walked through it firsthand. Well, it sounds more like training in the trenches. Like these are real life foster and adopter. Yeah. Yeah. So their training's coming from what they're learning themselves and, and then finding ways to be, to articulate that and to be able to use those experiences in helpful ways for, for other people. And so maybe, maybe the, the encouragement to uh, someone listening is just keep your eye out for those kinds of people, you know? Yeah. And tap them on the shoulder. Yeah. So Carly, um, when you think about the ministry that has been built there and you think of all the families that have come through and have been supported, is there, is there a story or an example of, a situation or a family where you you got to see that from the sidelines and you just thought to yourself this is what <laughs> this is what God intended for this ministry this is what I am here for I am all about this is there something like that that has just inspired you as you've watched yeah so when we first started our relationship with the department of family services we came to them and we said Um, we want to serve you. How is it that we can come alongside you and we can help your families? That's not going to be a further burden to the department, um, but that is actually going to be a help. So one of the things we did was we started hosting them on our church campus once a month to do an info session and then a few times a year to actually host their trainings here. So to get licensed to become a foster parent, those trainings would be here on our church campus. And, um, They were a little hesitant initially. Um, I think a lot of well-meaning people have gone to the department over the years and said, hey, we want to do this. But there's so much like government red tape that by the time they get to what would have been the finish line, everyone has burnt out. Um, And so we didn't. We stuck with it. And after that first set of training, um, they were like, oh, this this is great. Can we keep doing this? And we were like, yeah, absolutely. So we've been doing that for the last four plus years with the department. But what has been awesome about that is because of having those classes on our church campus, I think people who would not step foot in church otherwise feel more comfortable to come and engage in church because by the time they finished 10 weeks worth of classes, um, it's not a scary place anymore. Oftentimes, if they had biological children or if they had a child who had come to them during their classes, their children are already familiar with the children's ministry facilities. And so it's a comfortable place for them to return to. Um, So it's been really neat to see um, unchurched families come and engage in church because of that relationship through the department. But one specific story that I just heard of the last few days that was just super exciting to me. Um, I remember this young couple coming in about four years ago for an informational ses- session. Um, and 
four years ago, I had a lot more time on my hands. So I would attend all of those info sessions also just to build relationships with people. Um, and so I talked to this one couple after the class for about an hour and a half, they ended up doing their licensing classes on our church campus and became a part of our support group. Um, and we have watched them walk a very crazy foster care journey the last three years. Um, and they're in the process of adopting, um, a sibling group that they had for a while then reunified and has since come back to them. Um, and once they finish this adopt adoption, they are headed to Ohio, but their goal, as soon as they get there is to plug into a local church and start a fostering hope because they say it's the only way they've been able to be successful this whole time. So yeah. like, that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to have yeah. it replicated. That, that's so good. And it's such an encouragement for those listening to consider not only can we provide strong relational support and connection for those inside of our church, but perhaps also we can create those safe spaces for people outside of our church. Um, and we've even seen great success in a lot of communities of churches collaborating together and saying, you know what, maybe we all don't need our own separate support groups, but maybe we can do some things together that serve the greater community. Uh, and I found, um, you know, foster parents, probably care less about what church you go to or don't go to. They care more about just being connected to each other. Um, and so it, it, it gives some churches some Absolutely. freedom to say, you know what, we're going to drop our logos and egos a little bit, and we're going to do this better together um, at, to serve our community as best as we can. And that's an incredible story that you share as a, that's fruit of that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about that story too, is I think you said that that couple came to the orientation class like four years ago yep. and they've been in a three-year case. Um, that's a big deal. Like that's a lot of years for a foster mm -hmm. family to be a foster family. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that, you know, average is 50% of foster families are out within the first year. And so the, the, the very mm. fact that they were in so long speaks to the level of support yeah. because we know that supported families last longer. And they've thrived to the to the degree that where they're moving to next, they want to continue on in that ministry. Um, that's right. Uh, and that's a great point, Jason, that uh, more and more studies are showing and data is showing that the more relationally supported families are, the longer they stay engaged in the process and in the journey. Absolutely. Carly, maybe I can um, land the plane with with this question. I know that we have ministry leaders and, and pastors and volunteers and advocates listening, and to a certain degree that they can feel overwhelmed at times with all that needs to be done. And in particular, they know that the need for providing relational support to families is paramount, um, and they're wondering how do we do that effectively and sustainably. If you were to say, look, just don't overcomplicate it just kind of boil it down to this is the, these are the most important things. What would you say is the first step for them to either start or to move beyond this feeling of, we just feel stuck or we feel plateaued and we're not sure what to do next. How would you encourage them in that? Um, I would say sometimes stop focusing on doing and maybe focus more on being. Um, I would say some of the times where I have connected the most of the foster family is when I've literally gone to their house and sat on the floor and, helped fold laundry or built blocks with the kids or, um, just done a mundane task while listening. And I think the fact that those families know that I cared enough to go and just jump into their life, they had just as much buy-in then as I did. 
And so for them, it was like, Hey, come join me at this support group. Come join me at this church. And it wasn't because someone there has a good idea about how it should be, but because someone cared enough to come and get dirty with them, Mm. um, and to really sit in it. Uh, and I think that's something that it makes people feel a part of a family. Um, and so I would, I would say that, but I would also say consistency is important. Um, when our group, our support group was meeting twice a month on our church campus, we had a hard time with numbers. And I think part of that was people didn't ever know when we were meeting. Um, and so once we were able to go to a consistent night of the week with the same time with childcare, with all of those things being addressed, um, it really started to be where you could be in target and run into another foster parent and you could say, Hey, six 30, every Wednesday night at hope church, there's a support group come. And so it wasn't like people needed to find a website or figure out the calendar or do any of that to be able to join us. Um, and that was really when like the most random people started popping in because they were like, I heard that there's a support group and I need help. Well, Carly, we are, are so grateful for your time and your story. You've got some fascinating stories and um, we're just so encouraged by your willingness to step into these roles that God has led you into. And um, thanks so much for sharing about how you guys are doing that there in Las Vegas. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Wow, that was great. There was just so much gold in that conversation. I loved it. Yeah, there really was. You know, from their own story of being married for five, count them, five months. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, all of a sudden, yeah. having a sibling set of four, uh, that's that's just nuts. People in this space are nuts. Yes. Uh, to, <laughs> uh, to how that eventually turned into leading a support ministry at uh, at her church and around the city. Just fantastic. Yeah, no kidding. And I love how they've seen God work in a couple of different ways. And in a story that she actually shared that not only are they seeing God work in their care of families in their church and other churches around the city in the capital C church, but I love also how they're see, seeing God work as they open up relational support opportunities for even those outside of the church. Because one of the things that we know is true, Jason, is that it's not just followers of Jesus who foster. You know, we rub shoulders with, with other people in our communities who are also opening their homes to kids who also need that relational support network just as much as anyone. And they're seeing some really beautiful fruits of that happening through their ministry. For sure. And, you know, it just goes to show how important and vital uh, that relational support is to families, whether it's foster, kinship, biological, adoptive families. If you want to dive deeper into what relational support can look like in your church, make sure you check out the PDF that we have that covers all six of these pillars. Uh, For each pillar, there are questions that you can uh, talk about Uh, you can reflect on, you can talk with others in your church about, and we want to challenge you just to take the questions from today's episode uh, about relational support and really talk through those questions to see what kinds of things your church might be able to do as next steps. You know, this podcast is not about trying to lay out every possible thing that you could do. We're just really here to help you take your very next best step. That's right. That's right. And so there's going to be all kinds of resources available to you that we'll share with you about um, things that you can use in your support groups and in your support ministry that might be helpful 
for you. So all you have to do is click on the podcast link at morethanenoughtogether.org. That's right. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. This has been the Fostering Church Podcast. Join the Jasons and their guests for all seven episodes dedicated to helping your church provide more than enough for children and families in your community. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so that we can help more churches help more children and families. The Fostering Church Podcast is a production of More Than Enough, a collaborative movement facilitated by the members and partners of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. For resources related to this episode, click on the podcast link at morethanenoughtogether.org. That's morethanenoughtogether.org. 